So I have a question here concerning last night. How can metta be used to counteract sadness? Uh, If you're feeling sad and can't let it go during the meditation, what the Buddha says in general is to substitute with the opposite, substitute with something else. Metta is a pretty effective thing if you're in a negative state. So what you would want to do is metta not necessarily around the reason you're feeling sad. Um, Let's say you're feeling sad because someone you know has died. Then you wouldn't be doing metta for the person that died. You might do it for yourself. That would probably be a good thing. You might find that it's not so easy to do it for other people that were close to the person that had died. You might need to do metta for other people that you know, friends uh, or people that you admire, the Dalai Lama, something like that. The idea is to get your mind away from the sadness by filling it with something else, metta being a good practice to do to take your mind in another direction. So what I want to do during this period for the rest of the course is take a look at the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the greater discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. Maha means greater. There are two versions of the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, This longer version occurs in the long discourses, the Diganikaya, it's number 22, And the regular Satipatthana Sutta occurs in the middle-length discourses as number 10. The only difference between them is that the longer version has a detailed explanation of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is what I used as the basis for the talk night before last. But other than that, they're word for word the same. Sati is usually translated as mindfulness. It originally meant memory, and we could say that uh, what it means is remembering to be here now, remembering to be in the present, remembering to pay attention to what's going on right here. And patana is probably a shortened form of upatana, which means something like setting near. What the usual translation is is foundations, or references or something like that. What it means is the things to be mindful of. And so it's usually translated as the four foundations of mindfulness since there are four things given to be mindful of. Thus have I heard. All the suttas start out, thus have I heard. This was an oral tradition, and so it was recited. Thus have I heard. Once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town of theirs called Kamasadama. The land of the Kurus is identified by scholars as the area around modern Delhi. The Buddha wandered up and down the Ganges plain from around Calcutta to the area around Delhi, um, teaching and sometimes staying for the rains retreat in various places there. So at this time he was sort of in the northwest area of his wanderings around Delhi. And there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied, 
So this is a sutta given to monks. Most suttas start out with where it took place and who it was addressed to. This was initially important when they were trying to codify the suttas because somebody could go, yeah, I was with the Buddha in the Kuru country, and I don't remember him saying this, or yeah, he also said, or whatever. And the Lord said, there is this one going path that leads to the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, this one-going path is, well, that's what it literally means. The commentaries come up with, I think, a half a dozen different interpretation of what a one-going path means. I think it's a pun. It means a path that only is wide enough for one person to walk at a time, meaning you have to walk this path by yourself. But it also means a path that leads in one direction only. If you follow this path, then it leads to the purification of beings, overcoming sorrow and distress, disappearance of pain and sadness, gaining the right path, realization of Nibbana, the four foundations of mindfulness. And what are the four? Here one abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. So this construct of the body as a body means that it's this body, your body, and you're looking at it, however, as a field of sensations rather than my body. So the body as a body. As we'll see, there are also references to doing this both for yourself and for others. So when you're looking at another body, you're not looking at it as your friend or your fellow yogi or anything like that. It's just another body. The second foundation, one abides contemplating Vedana as Vedana, uh, usually translated as feeling, but that tends to bring to mind emotions, which is not what this means. Vedana means the initial impression from a sensory input, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. One abides contemplating mind states as mind states. One abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena, ardent, clearly aware, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. And now what follows is a number of practices to do so that you can be mindful of these four foundations. And the first given, of, of course, is mindfulness of the body. And how does one abide contemplating the body as a body? Here, having gone to the forest, to the root of a tree, or to an empty place, one sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and establishes mindfulness before oneself. So, Basically, this is the setup, the going to a place where there's no commotion, nothing going on, the forest, the root of a tree, or an empty room. So this would be an empty room in that it's empty of distractions. Sits down cross-legged, holds body erect, and establishes mindfulness before oneself. So sits down and puts one's attention on the meditation object. 
Mindfully one breathes in, mindfully one breathes out. So the first practice is mindfulness of breathing. Breathing in a long breath, one knows that one breathes in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, one knows that one breathes out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, one knows that one breathes in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, one knows that one breathes out a short breath. So these two, the long breath and the short breath, would be considered like the aids I talked about the first night. Remember the counting, the visualization, the word like budo, or looking at the parts of the breath. You could, instead of any of these, look at the relative lengths of the breath noticing which breaths are longer than average and which breaths are shorter than average. You might notice, does a long breath in always result in a long breath out and a short breath in always result in a short breath out? Usually we think our breathing is pretty regular, but if you pay careful attention, you will find that it varies in its lengths. So this is what the Buddha gives as the initial part of mindfulness of breathing, paying attention to the links in order to get settled. The third thing, one trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out conscious of the whole body. Now this has generated quite a lot of controversy as to what the term body means. It would seem to mean conscious of the whole body, and this is indeed one of the interpretations. It has been taken to mean that one follows the breath into the body and follows it out again. That's a fairly effective insight practice, but it's not so good for generating concentration because it lacks the one-pointedness. Your mind is too busy following the breath in and out. The commentaries say that the body referred to is the body of breath. The word body here is a translation, I believe, of kaya, which can mean a collection. We speak of a body of water or a a body of men. So the collection of breath. So one is paying attention to the beginning of the in-breath, the middle of the in-breath, the end of the in-breath, the gap, beginning, middle, end of the out-breath, the gap. This is what the commentaries say. I think probably, though, looking at the entire sutta on mindfulness of breathing, what one is to do is, while breathing in and out, become aware of the effect that the breathing is having on the body. Notice whether the body is settling down or feeling agitated. The fourth thing that's given, one trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in calming the whole bodily process. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out calming the whole bodily process. So the third one of noticing the body and then being able to relate the type of breathing that is calming for the body and intend to breathe in that way. Now, this doesn't mean that you control your breath. It's more about intending your breath, more about intending your breath to calm down if you find that calms your body rather than trying to control it in any way. 
We have a simile that's given. Just as a skill turner or his assistant in making a long turn knows that he's making a long turn, or in making a short turn knows that he's making a short turn, so too in breathing in long one knows that one breathes in long, etc. So we have a picture of someone working at a lathe. They have their tool and they're making a long turn or they're making a short turn. Okay? When you're paying attention to your breath, you should do so with the same diligence that you would do when working with power tools. If you're working with power tools, you can't be watching the football match on TV, right? You've got to be fully present. So this is the idea that's being presented here with the mindfulness of breathing. Be fully present with the breath. Now, as I mentioned, there are a number of suttas that talk about mindfulness of breathing in more detail. And in particular, they talk about 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing rather than just the four that are presented here. These first four steps could be considered to generate access concentration, although there is some insight available just from these first four steps in noticing that the breath varies, that it's not permanent. There's some exploration that can be done here. The next eight steps, when the full 16 are given, deepen the concentration as well as providing opportunities for insight. And then the last four steps are pretty much insight steps, particularly looking at impermanence. I'm not going to go into detail on this. I will recommend the book by Ajahn Buddhadasa called Mindfulness with Breathing. Uh, it's quite good and explains these 16 steps in great detail. I don't know if it's in the library here, but then you shouldn't be reading books during this retreat anyhow, so that's rather immaterial. There's also a book on mindfulness of breathing by Larry Rosenberg entitled Breath by Breath. Uh, if you can't find mindfulness of breathing but do find Larry Rosenberg's book, you can check that one out. Any questions about mindfulness of breathing? Okay, after each of the practices that's given here, we have a refrain. So one abides contemplating the body as body internally, contemplating the body as body externally, contemplating the body as body both internally and externally. Internally means your own body, externally means someone else's body. What this means if you're sitting there and the guy next to you is breathing too loud, you can follow his breath instead of your breath. You don't have to get upset. You just simply pay attention to the other person's breathing. You can notice in a more general sense that you breathe and all the other people breathe and the cows breathe and the rabbits breathe and the birds breathe and see the commonality there. Now, this internally, externally also produces uh, quite a bit of discussion as well. There are those who say that internally, 
represents the mind and externally represents the five senses. Uh, I don't really see where that's uh, an accurate translation or understanding of this, but you might find that someplace. One abides contemplating arising phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. For each of these practices, there's sort of the basic practice, and then there's the doing it internally and externally, and then there's doing it paying attention to the impermanent, inconstant nature of whatever your object of meditation is, so noticing the changes that happen. The Buddha said that it's better to live a single day noticing how things arise and pass away than to live a century and not notice this. It's a very, very key part of the path of practice. We make the assumption that things are going to stick around and provide us with lasting satisfaction. And then when they change, we get all upset. So one of the ways to break the tendency for craving and clinging is to see the impermanent nature of that which you have a tendency to crave or cling to. So internally, externally, arising and passing... Thus mindfulness, there is a body, is present to one just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that is how one abides contemplating the body as a body. The next practice that's given is the four postures. Again, when walking, one knows that one is walking. When standing, one knows that one is standing. When sitting, one knows that one is sitting. When lying down, one knows that one is lying down. In whatever way one's body is disposed, one knows how that is. Now, this is a very simple practice. I mean, you can do it right now and simply notice that you're sitting. That's it. Now, this is probably not a good practice to decide to do for a 45-minute session. I mean, you come in, you sit down, and you go, sitting. Yep, still sitting. (laughs) Still, no. But remember, we do it internally, externally, arising and passing. You should pay attention every time you change posture. How many times do you change your posture on a daily basis? I mean, you were lying down when you woke up this morning, And then you stood up, and then you started walking, and then you stopped walking and were standing, and then you started walking again, and maybe you sat down. I mean, how many times a day do you change your posture? I would guess that no one has any clue. I mean, more than 10, is it 100? So... What this practice is, is to pay attention to the change of posture every time you change your posture. When you go to lunch, they ring the bell, and you stand up. Notice the ceasing of sitting and the arising of standing. And then as you start to walk, notice the ceasing of of standing and the arising of walking. Just pay attention to these changes. 
I think you'll be quite amazed if you do this successfully the number of times you change your posture during the day from one of these four basic postures to another. Pretty simple practice. Any questions about it? Are you able to maintain? Are you able to meditate laying down? It is possible. I would suggest it only if sitting or being on a kneeling bench or sitting in a chair isn't working. In other words, you have some physical problem. But it is possible to lie down and meditate. Uh, The disadvantage is that it tends to make you fall asleep. So I would say do it only if necessary. It can be useful if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just wide awake. Rather than tossing and turning, you can try meditating. Maybe that'll calm you back down. When you're meditating, I would strongly recommend that you lie in a position that you don't normally sleep in. Uh, For example, lie on your back and pull your knees up so that your feet are on the floor or the bed or whatever. The pressure on the bottoms of your feet is a signal to your brain that you're standing up and you shouldn't fall asleep. So that can be helpful. And being in a different posture can be helpful so that you don't fall asleep. So if you're going to do lying down meditation, make sure you're not too sleepy because then you just fall asleep. And then lie in a, in a position that is different from the ones you usually sleep in. Uh, I would say that if you can just notice that you changed posture, that's quite good. As you get more concentrated and settled, maybe you begin to notice more about how the change is taking place. But if you can simply just check in with yourself each time you change, that's a very good start. So you're sitting here, and then when you stand up, just notice, yeah, The sitting went away, the standing is happening. And then when you start walking, notice the standing went away and the walking is happening, rather than following it all the way. Now, if you can follow it all the way, that's even better. That will get you a deeper level of concentration. But at first, just see if you can remember to pay attention at all to the change of postures. Sometimes you might not even notice it until... You know, a a moment afterwards, you're sitting down and you stand up and start walking and then you can reflect, oh yeah, I was sitting, I stood up, then I started walking. So sometimes that's, especially when you're trying to learn to do this, that's all that you catch. As you get more skilled, then you may notice more about it. Anything else on the postures? Yeah, quite interesting because you can be so, so 
Yeah. Your work, your yogi job might be quite a lot of changing postures from standing to walking, standing to moving just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. The third practice that's given is usually given as clear awareness. Uh, I prefer to say mindfulness of daily activities. Again, when going forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In looking forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In bending and stretching, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In carrying one's inner and outer robe and one's bowl, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In passing excrement or urine, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up, in speaking or staying silent, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. So what the Buddha is saying here is to be mindful of all of your activities, not just the change of postures. So the change of postures hopefully is sort of a signal to get you back into your mindfulness in case you've lost that. But you want as much as possible to be very aware of what's going on. So when you're standing in the lunch line, just notice that you're standing in the lunch line. When you're picking out your plate and your silverware, notice that's what you're doing. When you're serving yourself, be aware of what you're doing, etc. It says that one should be clearly aware in eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring. So this is mindfulness of eating. Our usual way of eating is load the fork, shovel it in, Start chewing, and while you're chewing, get the fork loaded, so as soon as you've got room, shovel it in. We wind up spending more of our attention on loading the fork than actually tasting the food. So what I'm going to recommend is the following. Load the fork, shovel it in. Notice what it's like to get the food off the fork into your mouth. Are your teeth involved? Is your tongue involved? What's going on there? Now, don't start chewing. Put the fork down. Let it go. (laughs) Now start chewing. Notice the taste. Notice the texture. Notice as you chew it how both the taste and the texture change. Notice what your tongue is doing. Notice that it's not under your conscious control. It's doing its own thing. It's an animal in there. It's darting around. It's dodging your teeth. It's shoveling the food from here to there. All right? I mean, it's quite weird. You're sitting there eating, and your tongue is doing its own thing. All right? Notice what it's like when you decide to swallow. Notice the consistency of the food. Notice what it's like to swallow. And then... Pick up your fork, load it up, and repeat. Uh, This will indeed make you eat slower. They have done studies, and they find that if you eat slower, you tend to eat less food. 
And as we saw last night, eating less food counteracts two of the hindrances. So I suggest that you eat mindfully. Just really pay attention to all the things and do one thing at a time so you can pay careful attention. Any questions on mindfulness of eating? It's helpful if you can do it at a normal speed and be mindful. It's easier to be mindful if you do it slowly. So what I would say is go a little slower than average, but don't feel like you have to be excruciatingly slow. You can eat at the regular speed. Just don't do two things at once. And if you're washing dishes, wash at the regular speed and be as mindful as you can. It says here that one is mindful when, well, using carrying one's inner and outer robe, I would say when getting dressed. So you can get dressed at the regular speed. Just be paying attention to what it's like to get dressed. I mean, when you put your pants on this morning, did you put your foot through the left leg or the right leg? Do you have a clue? Which sock did you put on first? I mean, you can pay attention to things like this. I had a student here a few years ago who, in order to help his mindfulness, on the even-numbered days, he put on his right sock first. He put his pants leg through the right first. He put his right arm through first on the even-numbered days. On the odd-numbered days, it was the left foot and the left arm. And he said it was really helpful for helping him be mindful of what he was doing. I mean, you can try that if you want. It says that one should be mindful falling asleep and waking up. So I have a homework assignment for you. You can bring me the answer in your interview. Do you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath? Do you wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath? I'll give you a hint. When you're falling asleep, be mindful of falling asleep rather than being mindful of breathing. If you pay attention to your breathing, you'll stay awake. Just you know, go to sleep and be mindful and pay attention. You can tell whether it's an in-breath or an out-breath. Okay? So basically what you want to do when you're not in here doing sitting meditation and you're not out doing walking meditation is do mindfulness of your daily activities meditation. This is extremely important if you're interested in experiencing any of the jhanas. It, this continuity of mindfulness keeps your concentration level up. If you build your concentration level up and then go about some period of time mindlessly, your concentration level will come back to zero. But if you can build your concentration level up and then be mindful of what you're doing, 
yeah, the concentration level comes down, but not so far down. And when you come back in, then you can build it up again. This may be one of the most important practices for learning the jhanas. Not that you experience the jhanas while doing this, but it's a training that takes you in the direction of the concentration that you need in order to experience the jhanas. So, any questions about this? Depends on who you ask whether the breath is superior or the mindfulness of activities is superior. I would say either one of them is fine. As long as you're either paying careful attention to what you're doing or you're with the breath. Now, when you are serving your food to yourself, I'd say forget the breath. Go with the serving of the food. And when you're eating, I would say pay attention to the eating. But at other times, it's fine to be with the breath. And I wouldn't say that it's wrong, you shouldn't do that if you're just with the breath all the time. So uh, either way works. I'd say probably if you're doing metta in your sitting, then you should let the metta go while you're doing other activities. If you just sit down to take a breather or have a cup of tea, you could resume the metta at that point. All right? But if you're, like I say, serving your food or eating or something like that, pay attention to that. Uh, but again, I wouldn't say it's wrong if you keep doing the metta all the time. It's, it's interesting to explore activities that we normally do on automatic. You'll learn a bit about yourself and about what's going on. So that's why I'm suggesting that you can drop the usual practice and take a look at what's happening. But I wouldn't say it's wrong if you don't want to do that. Right. Yeah, most of the time we wander around mindlessly. We're not carefully paying attention. We're remembering the past or fantasizing about the future, which actually seems rather ridiculous because the past is just memories and the future is just your fantasies. There is only now. I mean, think about it. What is time? My father asked me when I was about 10 or 12 years old, what is time? And I was like, it's, I mean, what is it? You know, the physicists say it's the fourth dimension. But how come it only goes in one direction? You know, in the other three dimensions, I could, I could walk over to the wall. I could walk back. You know, I could go forward. I could even jump up. Of course, I'll come back down. But with time, you're relentlessly moving into the future. Why does it go in only one direction? And how come it only goes at one speed? 
you don't have much choice. I mean, I could run to the back wall, I could run back here, I could stroll very slowly. But about all you can do to change the speed of time is either do something excruciatingly boring, which will slow it down, or something terribly exciting, which will speed it up. And it, it goes without you ever intending to do anything. What's going on here? Well, <clears throat> turns out time is an illusion. There's not really any thing such as time. There's change. And we attempt to measure the rate of change. And in so doing, we invent time. So we could say that time is an emergent property of change, but change is the basic thing that's happening. It's always now. You can't go back to the past. You can't even go to the future. I mean, when tomorrow comes, it's today. If you had a watch and it just had on it now, it'd always be correct. I mean, somebody asks you, what time is it? Oh, now. <laughs> you don't even need a battery. You know, you just paint now on it. Right? Which also points out the fact that there's no past. It's just your memories. And just how good is your memory? And there's no future. That's just your fantasies. When you think of the future, you're thinking about it now. So how come we spend so much of our time remembering the past or imagining the future when they don't even really exist? There's just now. So what the Buddha is saying with this practice is be here now. I mean, when you really stop to think about it, you don't have any other choice. I took a trip around the world. I encountered these signs quite frequently. It said, you are here. You know what? Every single one of those signs was correct. <laughs> you can't be any place other than here, and the time is always now. Right? It's not just good advice. It's the only option. So this is a practice of recognizing the here and now. This is what mindfulness is about, paying attention to what's going on right here, right now. Now, it sometimes is a specific limited set of what's going on right here, right now. In other words, you're paying attention to the touch of the air around your nostrils. You're ignoring quite a bit of the other things that are going on, but that's fine. But if you're doing anything else, you're not doing formal meditation practice, not doing sitting or walking practice, then pay attention to the here and now. And that's what this practice is about. In fact... <clears throat> I'll give you a suggestion for a walking practice to do. Go for a walk. Uh, it helps if you're by yourself, it's out in nature, where there's not a lot of external things to pay attention to, and you're somewhat familiar with where you're going, so you don't have to really pay attention so you don't get lost. And so you're just walking along, and try and walk outside of time. By that I mean you're just noticing that things are changing. That bird is changing its position in the sky. That tree fell over and it's changing its position into the earth. 
right? So there's no time. It's always now, but things are changing. Just walk along and try and stay in that space. It's quite an interesting thing to do, and it's actually quite challenging. It's quite easy to start remembering the past or fantasizing the future. But if you want to go for a walk, you can try doing this timeless walk and see how long a time you can be in a timeless state. (laughs) Does it matter if you miss the sitting? Well, I would say that your sitting practice is going to take you the deepest of any of your practices. So I wouldn't spend all of my time out doing walks. But yeah, you could go for a walk and then time it so you get back. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We have this illusory thing, this illusion of time, and yet we're pretty much bound by it with the ringing of the bells and eating at the right time and only being allowed to make the change of inside or outside the room when the bell rings. So we sort of need this illusion to make things run okay. But yeah, it's a bit tricky. Play with it and see. But if you miss the sitting, wait till the bell rings before you come in. Any other questions on this? Now, the word that's used here, when the Buddha says when going forward or back, one is clearly aware, is sampanjana. Clear comprehension is a way that it's used. In the Abhidhamma, they say that mindfulness is always a wholesome factor. You can never be mindful of something unwholesome. I have my questions about the Abhidhamma. As I said, the Buddha wasn't trying to generate a consistent metaphysics. And he also wasn't totally looking into deconstructing the universe. But that's exactly where the Abhidhamma, which appeared probably about 200 years after the Buddha's death, that's the direction it took to deconstruct the universe and create a consistent metaphysics. And so in talking about mindfulness, it says you can only be mindful of something wholesome which I think redefines mindfulness from what the way it's used in the suttas. As Ayakema said, if you're a bank robber and you're successful, you're going to need to be quite mindful in order to pull it off. But you lack clear comprehension. The clear comprehension is knowing the context of what you're doing. So the mindfulness is just being aware of what's actually taking place. But the broader context is actually important as well. So although you could be quite mindful as a bank robber, it's not recommended because you're taking what's not given. So it's important to look at the context, particularly in terms of the precepts. There's a teaching on clear comprehension It goes something like this. It has four parts. If you decide to do something, you need to clearly comprehend what the goal of this action is. You need to know what you're trying to accomplish. So that's the first one. 
The second one is you need to ascertain whether you have the means for accomplishing the goal. You may have a really brilliant idea, but if you have no way to accomplish that goal, then you need to let that go, not spend energy trying to do that. Then having ascertained the means as well as the goal, the third step is to check and see are both the goal and the means within the Dharma. In other words, would the Buddha approve? If, for example, your goal is ending world hunger, the Buddha would approve of that. And your means is you'll kill all the hungry people. Uh, I don't think the Buddha is going to approve of that. So you have to let it go. You need to come up with a better means. But if you do ascertain that the goal and the means are within the Dharma, then you carry out whatever your action is. And afterwards, you check to see, did you accomplish your goal? And if not, what can you learn from this failure? We often learn much more from things that go wrong than from things that go right. When things go right, we're just happy to sit back and, you know, stay where we are, not mess with success. But if something goes wrong, we need to look at it as a learning opportunity and find out what we can learn from it. I remember when I was traveling, I was staying at a guest house in the South Pacific and they had a detective novel there. Don't remember the title or the author or anything. But in the first chapter, the detective broke his leg very seriously and he had a great deal of trouble getting around to find out who'd done it. But he kept using the phrase, these things are sent to teach us. What can I learn from this? And so he was investigating everything in terms of what can I learn from this? And eventually, of course, in the last chapter, he figured out who'd done it. But I think this is a very valuable thing to keep in mind. If something goes wrong, what can you learn from it? So clear awareness, awareness of your daily activities and awareness of, you know, is what you're about to do within the Dharma, I think is quite important. It can be very helpful both in daily life as well as in helping you generate good concentration while you're on a retreat. And of course, one does this internally, externally, arising and passing, etc. Any questions about this? Right. So the the last part of the frame. Thus, mindfulness, there is a body, is present to one just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. All right. So you're not caught up in the body and what it's doing. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. The independent may refer to the fact that you are independent of the teaching of anybody else. In other words, you're not going through life trying to follow somebody else's rules. You're independent. You're paying attention to what's going on. 
and you're not clinging to anything else in the world because you have seen the impermanent nature of all these things that you're paying attention to. I'm not totally sure about the independent, but you do find frequently in the suttas a, uh, a statement that one is a independent in the Buddha's dispensation in the sense that one is independent not looking to another teacher, that the practice itself has given you what you need and you're not looking elsewhere for instruction. That's my guess. There's a particularly good book on the Satipatthana Sutta by the Venerable Analio. The title of the book is Satipatthana. Uh, He's done a brilliant job of explaining the things in here, and I highly recommend this book. And he goes into this refrain in quite detail. I maybe should look in the library and see what he says about the independent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Analio, A-N-A-L-Y-A-O, something like that. Uh, I have a reading list on my website, and it's on that reading list. Anything else you find by him is also quite good. He has a number of smaller publications that are on the web that are worth reading. Anything else on mindfulness of daily activities? This is more a question for after retreats, but I have a couple of Right. It's very difficult to really be sitting there going, I'm typing an email. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I remember asking came of this exact same question, you know, in regards to my computer programming. And she said, as long as you're fully present with what's happening, that's what's being talked about here. So if you're typing an email and you're trying to read a book at the same time or listen to something on the radio or watch TV or eating an apple, that would not be considered being mindful. But if you're fully engaged in answering the email, then, yeah, you're fully present with what's going on. You're being mindful. You're not saying to yourself, typing an email, which you might be doing on a retreat, washing the dishes or serving food. But you can be totally engaged in something, totally in the here and now, and not have a need to comment on it. That's the the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Doing one thing at a time is highly recommended. Uh, we only have a single processing unit. You only got one CPU in your mind. So we're not really able to actually do two things at once. (coughs) We're switching back and forth between the two things. And they have done studies that find that you do both things less well, that your time is actually better spent doing one thing to completion and then the second thing to completion than trying to do the two of them at the same time. So yeah, definitely if you can, do one thing at a time. And when your boss comes in and gives you extra work to do, say, well, now which one thing do you want me to work on? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, you want to be conscious of what you're doing rather than being self-conscious or rather than being lost in the past or the future or something else. Quite often when we're doing something that doesn't require a lot of brain power, uh, washing the dishes, we're busy making our plans for what we're going to do after we finish washing the dishes or something like that. So the idea is to be conscious of what you're doing there. Right, yeah, you don't, you may at times be conscious, I'm washing the dishes, but if you can just be fully present with the washing of the dishes, that's certainly fine. If the conscious of yourself doing it comes in, that's great. If it doesn't come in, it doesn't matter. Can we move the concentration consciousness in, into sleep? You can remain fairly concentrated as you're going to sleep, but I think once you actually go to sleep, <laughs> yeah, I don't know that the, the concentration will remain at that point. It doesn't seem to be necessary. In other words, if you're managing to stay really mindful as you're getting ready for bed and getting into bed and going to sleep, then it seems to carry over and it's much easier to step back into that mindfulness when you wake up than if you've been doing a lot of last-minute things and rushing around. You seem to wake up with the ability to get back to that quiet state a little bit further away. But when you're in the sleep, I don't know. Uh, there are practices, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, of dream yoga. And it may be helpful for doing those, but I've never done those practices, so I don't really know. Could you just say it a little bit more about the, the, the point about um, being conscious rather than self-conscious? Rather than needing to say to yourself, I'm washing the dishes... It's me washing the dishes. It's perfectly okay to be fully present with just washing the dishes. You're seeing the dish. You're seeing where the food particles are. You're washing them off. You're doing the rinsing. Now, it can be quite helpful to say to yourself, washing the dishes, rinsing the dishes, things like that. But that's an aid. It's not the essence. The essence is not getting lost. The essence is not getting away from the here and now of what's going on. Does that help? So getting absorbed in doing the dishes is, is fine, right? It's sort of excluding yeah. else. Yeah, you're fully mindful of what you're doing, yes. Right. Remember, sati is a literally means memory, to remember. So to remember what's happening, okay? And it's not really about remembering I'm doing the thing. In fact, <laughs> you might have heard of the not-self teaching. <laughs> the continually thinking I'm washing the dishes is reinforcing the sense of I. <clears throat> it turns out it's quite possible to wash the dishes and do a particularly good job of it without any reference to I. Right? There's just the washing of the dishes that's taking place. Uh, 
and there's no ego construction that's really required in order to do a good job of washing the dishes. Anything else on mindfulness of daily activities? Okay, we've got a little bit more time. I'm going to skip the next two and go to the sixth practice that's given, which is the nine charnel ground contemplations. Again, as if one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, discolored, festering, and compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature, it will become like that, It is not exempt from that fate. Again, if one were to see a corpse in a charnel ground thrown aside, eaten by crows, hawks, or vultures, by dogs or jackals or various other creatures, and compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature, will become like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, as if one were to see a corpse in a charnel ground thrown aside, a skeleton with flesh and blood connected by sinews a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood connected by sinews, a skeleton detached from flesh and blood connected by sinews, randomly connected bones scattered in all directions, a hand bone here, a foot bone there, a shin bone here, a thigh bone there, a hip bone here, a spine here, a skull there, and compares this body with that. Again, as if one were to see a corpse in a charnel ground thrown aside with the bones whitened looking like shells, The bones piled up a year old. The bones rotted away to a powder and compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature. It will become like that. It is not exempt from this fate. Well, since we don't have charnel grounds here in the West, uh, you can't really go do it exactly as described here. But it does say, as if one were to see. So... There are other things that you can do to help you get into the as-if. One is if you're hiking out in nature, you may come across some creature that has died. And you can take a look at its body and see what's happening. It may be that, particularly on a retreat, you can go to the same location on multiple days and watch the decomposition taking place. You may live somewhere where there's a medical school and you might get permission to view a dissection of a human body. That would be more than as if. Uh, I had a student who said she had a friend who was a coroner who invited her to go to the morgue and look at the bodies. There is an exhibit that has traveled around in the United States known as Body World, People have donated their bodies, and they've been covered in plastic, and so you can see parts of bodies. That would be quite interesting. And on the Internet, there is a virtual charnel ground. Someone donated their body such that basically there are pictures of this body decaying. And so you go to the website, and there's the first picture, And you click on it, and there's the next, and the next, and the next. So there are possible ways to do this practice. 
And as I said, you can go to Asia and go to the burning ghats. It's not quite the same thing, but it certainly has quite an impact. And there are a few charnel grounds left in Asia, though they're quite difficult to come by, and they don't like tourists coming and gawking, so you have to be careful there. And of course, one does it internally and externally, meaning that one recognizes that one's own body is going to become like that, and externally one recognizes that other people's bodies, the people that you love, will also become like that. And one notices the arising and the ceasing, quite a lot of that, and thus mindfulness is established just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that is how one abides contemplating the body as a body. Questions, comments? Right, yes. So you can go see a fleshless skeleton detached, uh, a, a skeleton detached from flesh and blood connected by sinews. So you can at least contemplate that part of it. And you can go for a walk through the graveyard at the church and check out the dates. It's kind of an interesting thing to do. Uh, some people live a long time and some people don't live a long time. You never know. <laughs> <laughs>